Hi, I'm Corey Pine. This is News from Nowhere, formerly the top English language podcast from Bihar, East India. This is episode number nine for those of you who've been listening since last year, but it's episode number one of the version of this podcast hosted by my friends at the Baffler magazine. That's right, it's day zero. Uh, lots happened since the last episode, and I left India for one. It got a little hairy there. Before I went to Bihar, more than one friend said, bring a gun. And I laughed at them for a while. My wife and I had no problems. We thought that most of what people said about Bihar being dangerous came from regional prejudice, like Americans talk about the Deep South or British about the North of England. Anyway, there were a few days where I would have felt better there with a gun. Those were the days right before my wife and I fled to Hong Kong. Anyway, I'll have to save that story for another time. I'll also be talking about guns later in this episode, frankly, more than I'm comfortable with. The upshot is I'm back in America. This podcast comes to you now from Portland, Oregon. I took a detour through Washington, D.C. I was there for Trump's inauguration. I was there on K Street covering the street protests when that limo went up in flames. I fortunately did not get swept up by the police like a number of other reporters did uh, and charged with felony rioting. So that was a nice welcome back to America. Uh, the last episode was recorded just after Trump's election. Now he's been president almost 100 days and all the news is about imminent nuclear war, which was entirely predictable. Really, this is where I expected America to be after 100 days of Trump. I venture to say that it's what a lot of people voted for. Burn it down, a lot of people said during the campaign when reporters asked them why they were voting for Trump. Speaking for myself, that's not how I want to go. It's like a murder-suicide pact these people have signed us up for. I hear liberal friends say, ah, well, if Trump starts a nuclear war, I won't care because we'll all be dead. Yeah, but not right away. Have you not read John Hershey's classic work of reportage, Hiroshima? This idea of being instantly and painlessly vaporized is a fantasy. Now, the odds are we're talking about a slow, painful death by radiation poisoning, or starvation as the networks of commerce and modern urban infrastructure deteriorate. I'm not saying we're all going to die. I'm saying we're facing any number of crises comparable to the Cuban Missile Crisis, but with Donald fucking Trump, who probably has dementia, being nominally in charge, restrained only by his idiot children, his hand-picked Nazi cabinet, and some career Pentagon hawk straight out of the war room in Dr. Strangelove. I saw someone on Twitter suggest that the American empire is running on autopilot. I think that's basically right, but they left out the part where it's on autopilot headed straight for a brick wall. Whatever happened with Trump and his cronies and the Russian mob, this situation is not a Kremlin creation. This is America's own unique and grotesque baby. I am optimistic, though. I think if we survive the next few years, then within 15 or 20 years, we will have universal health care, free higher education, guaranteed housing and income. Our grandchildren will be rolling their eyes as they learn about the next greatest generation, and I mean us. With that, I'll get on with the show. Now that I'm in a country where the internet works, I can have guests on this podcast. I've got three guests for you today. Later in the show, I'll talk to Adrian Bonenberger. Adrian is a writer and U.S. military veteran who's currently based in Kiev, Ukraine. He's also a university lecturer, the author of a collection of letters titled Afghan Post, and his essays have been published by the New York Times, Task and Purpose, and on a website with writing by himself and other combat veterans called Wrathbearing Tree. I'll talk with Adrian about one of his essays urging leftists to learn how to shoot. Uh, but first, I'll talk to Will Meneker and Amber Ali Frost. Amber is co-host with Sam Chris of the other Baffler podcast, Whale Vomit. And Amber and Will are among the half dozen or so co-hosts of the Chapo Trap House podcast, which if you aren't listening to, at least sample an episode from their reading series. It's hilarious. Will and Amber and I will be talking about one of my favorite recent TV shows, Planet Earth 2, which ran on the BBC and which you can still watch online, I think. Hello? Hey, Amber, it's Corey. How's it going? Hi. Going good. Thanks for coming on. Hey, what's up? 
Well, I saw you tweeting about watching Planet Earth 2, the very fine uh, nature documentary narrated by David Attenborough. I thought, Mm -hmm. let's talk about animal shows. Yeah, well, I watched it over at Amber's house. Yeah, it's a big to-do with me, and I I have taken to sort of having parties around it. Very big on nature documentaries. I saw your essay in Current Affairs. You described animal documentaries as having a reputation for being emotionally impenetrable. Yeah, yeah. My take on nature documentaries is that they are movies starring animals, but they're just as Hollywood as any kind of big-budget blockbuster, and they are are oftentimes edited in extremely emotionally manipulative ways. Sometimes they're produced, you know, under sort of dubious ethical conditions. But I love them a lot. I love the bad ones. I love the good ones. I like watching animals be animals in the way that I would like to imagine animals are and not in the way animals actually are, which is like doing nothing interesting at all 95% of the time. Sleeping, Yeah, eating. like those, those yeah. movies about penguins where it's just, yeah, no, they are just like sitting on a piece of ice for most of the time. Yeah, it's like watching people, honestly, except people are more active. But the majority of their days are made up of, you know, minutia and <laughs> moving pebbles or waiting for someone to walk by that they might be able to have sex with. But there's a lot of waiting in nature. When I watch these nature documentaries, especially Planet Earth, they're so tightly edited. I feel like it's the closest thing that I can experience to a dog watching normal television because <laughs> I just feel like completely absorbed and there's like whatever higher level like you're talking about the ethics and you know artistic honesty of the nature documentary and I can think about that later I guess but when I'm watching one my critical faculty shut down and I'm just watching the critters run from one corner of the screen to the other oh yeah 100% yeah I'm, I'm not sitting there analyzing I mean it takes me into like the third watch or something to, you know, look at it critically or whatever. But most of the time I watch nature documentaries just stoned out of my gourd, which is the best way to yes. experience nature documentaries. It's um, the best way to experience nature just in general. It absolutely is, because it seems more benevolent than it is that way. <laughs> Attenborough, I, I think he's a, an incredibly ethical documentarian. He strikes a nice balance between, you know, the drama of editing and his ideology about how nature exists and whether it exists autonomously from, you know, mankind or civilization has sort of shifted over time. Um, I haven't watched, because I like to, again, watch these things collectively, <laughs> I haven't watched the cities of the planet Earth 2 yet. Um, I'm planning uh, another planet Earth party to watch that one. Um, but I am told by Sam Chris, who also, that uh, the cities one really does an amazing job in acknowledging that uh, humans aren't totally disparate from nature, especially considering how much we shape it. I mean, we are the most influential species on the planet. Unfortunately. Yeah. We're not good at it. Corey, have you seen have you seen Planet Earth Two yet? Yes, uh, I have watched the whole series. I was gonna ask Will where you are at in your viewing. We see I've seen the first four episodes of the new Planet Earth. I haven't I've yet to cap off uh, the series, but we did like I said, we did sort of a marathon at Amherst House. And the thing that I thought was interesting is you talked about like the, the the ethics and sort of like the filmmaking of this. There was like a, a pseudo controversy about one of the things that was put in this movie, and I'm referring, of course, to the rather harrowing sequence of a mother snow leopard being attacked by two male snow leopards, and it was like almost a pseudo uh, I'm going to say rape, I suppose. And, and, and I guess in the animal kingdom, it's 
different context. Let's establish for listeners who haven't seen exactly what happened here. My recollection was that there was a endangered snow leopard, I don't know, Nepal or somewhere like that, with cubs, right? She was like yeah, teaching yeah, she her cubs. She had a cub that she was protecting, yeah. And it, it was kind of a really interesting thing because it was clearly like an exchange. Like it was a, a quid pro quo. She engaged in this, uh, let's say, coercive sexual activity in order to distract them from her cub. Which, again, like, that's incredibly troubling to us because we, you don't like to see, you know, animals in conflict, but also because we're kind of anthropomorphizing. People were very upset by the uh, the inclusion of, of, of this sequence in, uh, in, in Planet yeah. Earth, apparently. And the producers said we have to compete with things like game of thrones which is yeah, you yeah. Know, a show that does a lot with uh sexual violence and i was just like well no you don't really have to compete with game of thrones this is not it's a different genre here you know yeah, people I think the really... justification should have just been like look that's what happens in nature i thought it was very uh scary and um kind of sad it's really troubling nature is really brutal and awful that's I mean... why we have people edit it into like cute babies that don't get eaten cute baby that does get eaten, horrible thing, and then something cute again. I mean, you need that perfect sandwich, otherwise it's just unbearable. Like in uh, in, the, in the Attenborough series, uh, Blue Planet, right? There's I, another, yes. uh, it's, yeah, it's great. And there's Deep another cut. really harrowing scene where it's a uh, mother whale and her calf. They're, you know, on the move and they're just being harried by this pod of orcas. And mm-hmm. they keep trying to get at the calf and they just keep trying to get it. And like the mother has to like sort of try to stay over it or protect the calf. And they just push her to the limit, and eventually she just gives up, and they just they just kill this her child basically in front of her, and like that one yeah. really stuck with me. Is there some like anxiety particular to the moment that we're working out by watching these like very harrowing scenes of you know families sheltering their young from certain death? I mean, I think it is a kind of safe catharsis. We want to see the worst things possible happen, you know, in in entertainment, because it helps us sort of experience them from a safe distance. But even seeing that happen to another human, say, in, you know, a feature-length film is a lot. So it's almost, I don't know, like a, a, a training wheels version of that to anthropomorphize an animal, because then you can take a step back from it and be like, okay, well, yeah, but it is still just an animal. And I love animals, but they are just animals. I think they're, you know, capable of a, of emotional response and, you know, capable of affection and bonding and all of that. But it is less troubling than to see, say, the equivalent of a human being watching their child being killed. But yeah, we always play around with, like, making them more human than they actually are. I mean, like, that's like, it's an empathy experiment. And, it, and I think it's a good one. And I, I think it makes us sort of kinder, gentler creatures to care about these you know little animals with dumb walnut brains and to like (laughs) feel moved by their plight yeah the the empathy experiment when you watch like planet earth is it'll go from like one segment like in the the very first episode of the new series it goes from uh this very funny and cute sequence of uh a sloth swimming across like a mangrove yeah try and get laid yeah Yeah, how relatable (laughs) oh yes that was totally relatable it's a thirsty sloth uh and then it goes from that to the Komodo Dragon Island, and I was going from like the sloth being like, "Oh wow, we we have, we should protect nature, like this is amazing," to that Komodo Dragon Island, and I was just like, "Nuke it, get rid yeah, of them." Yeah, <laughs> we're like, kill every single one of those dinosaur <laughs> dragon monsters. They're awful. 
their their sex looks worse than them eating a deer. It's all terrible. <laughs> I feel uh, like there's also something about David Attenborough as the narrator. And I know in the original Planet Earth series got ported to America, they they like put in a different narrator, which seemed idiotic to me. But there's yeah. there's something about his sort of uh, genteel and very repetitive speech patterns that, that really adds to the experience. And I, I don't know if that's cultural bias or what, but I will say that my wife and I have a drinking game of whenever he says Vost, you know, which is at <laughs> least 10 times an episode. You know, there's something. Yeah, he's incredibly likable uh, and he seems very professional. I mean, he's like a naturalist, which is like a thing that I think only exists in England at this point, you know. And in America, people would want to be sort of defined by their their specialty and, you know, what they got their Ph.D. in. It sounds very anachronistic almost to my ears. He's very sympathetic. I remember at one point there was a scene where like um, some bird attacked another bird's egg because it's like an oviraptorous bird. It eats other birds' eggs. And so the bird came back after getting food or something and saw that their egg was cracked. But they proceeded to try and like, you know, sit on the egg. Like they looked at it and you hear David Attenborough say, she knows something's wrong. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, God, because it's such a light touch. In, uh, in like his earlier series, like he's, actually like in the movies way more like in the planet earth series he's much more like the voice of god right but like yeah. in, in like in like for instance like the the life of series like he's like in the movie like a lot more like he'll he'll introduce like each segment and he'll be like standing on a beach next to like a seal or something yeah well and a lot of it has to do with like the changing sort of attitudes towards the ethic of you're you not know, supposed to poke uh, the animals anymore <laughs> yeah i mean he used to see just David Attenborough just holding up a turtle being like, look at this fucking turtle, you guys. (laughs) But, like, they don't do that anymore because it's considered uh, obtrusive and and in some ways it can be. I do think uh, it would look gauche to us at this point to hear the voice of God being like, you guys, you guys, I found this fucking lizard. And just, like, holding a lizard. Like, he, he can't do that. I think as an omniscient kind of narrator, he has reached peak Attenborough. He's a living archetype. Yeah. Isn't there like a colonial overtone? Well, in, that, in that he's a British guy going like anywhere he wants in the world with like a shirt with a lot of pockets on it and just like doing whatever he wants. <laughs> to do. yeah. Yes, exactly. There is a colonial overtone yeah. uh, to, to Attenborough for sure. Yeah, I do think that nature documentaries sometimes uh, have a tendency to veer into a kind of ambiguous racism. Attenborough is better than than most but there was one moment in the the first season of planet earth there was this highly sustainable practice of these men in borneo would repel into caves and take these bird's nests and use them in like bird's nest soup which is like an extremely expensive sort of delicacy it didn't really affect the ecosystem cave swiftless were not endangered or anything it, it was just sort of like a weird left field thing like by the way Look at these wacky Asians. Look at what they eat. These people eat bird spit. Um, <laughs> the, like... the cave swiftlets make their nests out of spit. Uh, it was sort of a weird digression. Um, that's nothing compared to what like a lot of nature documentaries do when they're like, the populations of cities will eventually kill this salamander or whatever, and they'll show like a Chinese city, and they'll shoot it from overhead, and they'll compress the shot so it looks like that there's an infestation of Chinese people, and you'll have, hear like a British uh, voice yeah. narrating yeah. it, and you're like, this feels suspect. It, it, well, this is why I, I'm really looking forward to the cities episode of uh, Planet Earth 2, because I feel like every time human beings show up in these movies, it's like a very violent disruption in the fantasy 
that the movie is presenting. Like, like this, I think yeah. this is what I, why I find nature documentaries appealing. Like the fantasy of it is like that there is still vast swaths of this earth untouched by the the stench of humanity and like that, that these animals like, yes yeah exactly like and that like that, that these animals like they have their own universe and world you know that's sort of more honest or pure but like you know off screen there's probably like you know garbage or like you know just like like the the artifacts and remnants of humanity like and you can't get away from it and like you don't you never see that in these movies like you like you're buying into the fantasy that um that this pristine nature it's, it still exists in the world. I mean, even if you're saying, well, like, okay, this is a this is an area that you know man has not been in for hundreds of years or whatever, and was never logged or developed or drilled or anything. I mean, we've affected the temperature, right? Like the global temperature. So there's just literally nowhere on Earth untouched by man at this point. This is like an indictment of our entire species. I so that's he... why we have David Attenborough to do great PR for nature. And I think he does a wonderful job, you know, suspect, problematic stuff, you know, notwithstanding. I, I haven't found anyone that doesn't enjoy these films. And I, I think there's something to it if, like, this back-of-the-brain awareness that this world is disappearing. You know, and Attenborough, in his work, is very explicit about it. There, There's something of a, yeah. like, a real-time nostalgia happening, I think, when we watch these shows, too. Well, we're watching Decline. Yeah. And it's very troubling, and it's very alarming because we like these things, and we agree that they're beautiful, as harrowing as they are. Even Attenborough himself, there's a parallel to that's like, maybe a little heavy-handed, but you can kind of hear him dying. Like, you can yes. kind of hear God dying who watched the latest <laughs> You hear his voice. You know he's not going to be around much longer. He's talking about all of these environments that are under threat directly from man. You're kind of experiencing the death of God. <laughs> wow, I didn't think we'd wind up there. Uh... <laughs> well, I smoke a lot of weed when I watch these, so I have a lot of those incredibly uh, insightful uh, moments that actually sound really stupid and grandiose in the light of day. It's going to be David and the, the last uh, white rhino just walking off into the sunset together. <laughs> totally. That would be the right way to end the movie. I mean, really. Like, that would be the happy yeah. ending. And then we clone them both and bring them both back. So we can bring back extinct species like woolly mammoths and uh, dodos and, and now the white rhino. <laughs> yeah, so Planet Earth 3 will be a Jurassic Park reboot as well. Hell yes. Yeah. Planet Earth 3 Cannot will just be wait. like, yes, cloning prehistoric animals and bringing them back. I'll, I'll need something harder for that. Maybe we'll do acid. <laughs> my uh, my takeaway here is that nature documentaries are good for the left because they build empathy and also help produce animal memes. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah. Now on to my interview with Adrian Bonenberger from Rathbearing Tree. Hello, Adrian. Hey, man. How's it going? Not too bad. Uh, so tell me uh, where you grew up and how you wound up in the military. Sure. I grew up in a pretty standard, aspirationally middle-class family. My dad and my mom uh, were very much children of the 60s, and my mom had been a poet in the 1970s and 80s. My dad had been a classical guitarist, specializing in Spanish classical guitar. Uh, and I'd grown up in a weird quasi-communal environment. And war was really like the last thing on anybody's mind. The army was something that football players did. Yeah, and it's strange to think back 
before 9-11, right? I mean, like, it, I, I hate to say, like, that that changed a lot of things because it feels like that plays into a certain type of patriotic monologue that I heard at the time. Like, nothing will be the same uh, in a weird Starship Troopersy kind of way. And so, anyway, I, I, I protested Iraq. I thought that that was pretty clearly wrong. After we went in anyway and we got bogged down there and it, we were sort of committed to it, I really felt like, I don't know, it felt like something that the nation was processing and I wanted to be a part of that. So I joined up at the end of 2004, right after Bush was reelected. And uh, then you were deployed. Then I, I went through about a year, year and a half of training, uh, went to the 173rd Airborne. We deployed to Afghanistan. We were supposed to deploy to Iraq, but in, like our language training was all for Iraq. And then we ended up like... I think a month or two months out, our orders were changed because of the surge, and we went to Afghanistan instead, um, a fight for which we had really not prepared. And then um, I'd had another like couple years of training, redeployed to Afghanistan with the 10th Mountain Division, 2010. Your essay, the one that really got my attention on the Wrath Bearing Tree, uh, which is at wrath-bearingtree.com, uh, is called The Left Must Organize for Violence. And we can get into the ins and outs of the argument. It's a very comprehensive essay. Uh, but rather than dive straight in, why don't you tell the story uh, that you used to open the essay? So my father's stepmother, Fritzi, I don't remember what her maiden name was. I don't know if she was even using her maiden name or if it was her married name. I, I knew her growing up as a very strict woman, a source of authority in the household, who was really big on diet and like and self-control and very interesting person i wish i'd known her as an adult but uh she was very strict with me she did not like me at least as far as i felt and she very much liked my sister and um after college or during college uh she passed and i hadn't seen her for three or four years and I came back into her life after she was dead and saw all of these things from her previous life, from her earlier life as a, a socialist agitator, basically, and somebody who was married to, as it was described to me, one of Eugene Debs's, like, the part of the close circle that, that surrounded Debs, so either a friend of his or a colleague of his. And there was this black and white photo of her you know, uh, target shooting, you know, shooting a target. And I was like, what? She doesn't like guns. What is this? Makes no sense. She had forbidden gun toys, military toys, G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe television shows. Like none of that was allowed in her uh, in her house when we visited them. Like 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 a good leftist. Right. Like we understand that now. Yeah, okay. exactly. And according to my grandfather, she had been up in, in upstate New York in the 1930s training as part of a resistance cell to fight the FBI. Throughout my life, I have forgotten that moment many times, the, the revelation that the left used to be a serious enterprise that was not what should be done or what must be done or compromise or dialogue or language. All of those things were important and necessary to the left. But there was this other thing that the left was building, a sense of itself as an organization that was capable of violence. Violence itself is not an acceptable way of negotiating, but in America, I hope that the left isn't just a group of people who get together in order to uh, achieve 
aesthetically pleasing results from politics. Like, I feel like that's the liberals and the progressives, that we should do this because it feels right or it makes us feel good. Um, the left needs to be serious. The left needs to be apart from that and different from that. And one of the things that that should start with is an understanding that there is an obligation in any political arena to be prepared to do violence. Paradoxically, once one is prepared to do violence, the necessity to do violence goes away. And this is the part that's very difficult to communicate. Uh, it's the same argument for nuclear armament, for example. And I see this in Ukraine. Ukraine is a country that got rid of its nuclear arsenal. Then it got rid of most of its navy and it stopped maintaining its air force and it stopped maintaining its army. Because why? Because what, what's, the argue, what's the rationale? What is the argument to have an army or an air force or a navy if you gave away your nukes? Why would you have those things? Why would you have any self-defense? If you needed self-defense, you should have hung on to your nukes, obviously. And what we learn is that at a national stage, at any rate, um, Self-defense is actually really important, especially if you're neighbors with a country that is aggressively imperialistic like Russia or some would argue like America. Um, and so I look at that. And again, I look at, you know, the Afghan tribes and the way they organize themselves. And I think, isn't it prudent to have these things not to use them? but so that one need not use them. I think that's a pretty succinct uh, uh, summary of the argument you make in the essay. Um, and it raises a lot of questions in my mind. One, you're talking about the, the national and international context of an organized military and unilateral disarmament and what happens, uh, for example, in Ukraine's case when it gave up its nuclear weapons. But you're also you're making an argument about the domestic American political context which is very volatile right now. And, you know, when you talk about your, your grandmother organizing to fight the FBI, I almost hesitated to share your essay with someone because there's something about it that feels very dangerous. Um, to even discuss these matters is, is so contrary to the culture of the left and liberalism, even, uh, in the United States. Um, it feels very transgressive and almost like an invitation to counteraction. I grew up in a context of, um, uh, well, I grew up in the sticks, militia country in north central Washington. You know, they're constantly survivalists moving there and stockpiling ammunition. And <laughs> I, I, I grew up hearing about the black helicopters. And when I was reading your essay, I thought about my own childhood and those people talking openly about fighting the federal government. I mean, it was a constant preoccupation through the 90s and it continues to the present day. So there's a very strong culture of private militias, essentially, and individual gun nuts in the U.S., but they're all on the right. There was a, a piece on thetrace.org um, called The NRA Appoints Itself Leader of the Trump Counter-Resistance. Wayne LaPierre, you know, the, the, the great Wayne, Basically, he says, you know, this is the, the left is the enemy and they're the ones who are going to ruin the American dream. And the NRA does not stand for Second Amendment rights. The NRA stands for arming the right wing of America, arming conservatives, true patriots. And it uses right. a lot of jingoism, the usual stuff. The, 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 the real concern in a kind of reappropriation of the language and tools of violence in the left 
is that it will provoke some type of reactionary response. Well, you know, this is one, you, you raise an issue, and this is a good segue to a point I wanted to make that I didn't feel like you addressed in the essay, which is that any increase in gun ownership in the United States is going to lead inevitably to increases in um, suicides, in spousal abuse and child abuse, because regardless of your politics, there's just a straight correlation. People who uh, own guns often own them to terrorize their family members. I understand a lot of your argument, but don't we have to grapple with that? If we were to accept your, your premise that the left to be viable uh, politically at this moment needs to revisit its attitudes towards uh, armament and organized violence, that there's going to be consequences. Yes. The, probably the weakest um, ethical ground on which I stand holding this position is that to make a convincing and credible argument for the Second Amendment, one must accept those facts that you describe. Gun ownership correlates very strongly with, and I, I think we can, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's not a direct causal relationship, but it's so heavily correlative that it's like, it almost doesn't matter at that point. And I'm, I bring that up just to sort of dismiss the obvious counter argument. What I saw, and this is another part of the essay, before Trump's election was a lot of Trump supporters that I knew, probably some of the same people that you knew, preparing for violence, you know, and talking about this with really disturbing, casual uh, language on social media. He talked about it on the stage. Um, yeah. And now that we've, um, we, the, the elephant has emerged from its uh, spot in a corner of the room and come right out to the middle. I mean, Trump is the 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 reason we're talking about this, right? Yeah, and I even the, so the election didn't go the way almost anybody thought. If it, you know, there's probably ten or fifteen percent of America who, who who thought they had it figured out, and they voted for Trump because they were sure that he was going to win. So the type of language that I saw with some of my veteran and military colleagues uh, from my previous life was Trump's going to lose. Clinton, whom we hate, is going to be president. What are we going to do? Like, get the guns. Like, it's it's going down. Yeah. And th there's a lot of sedition in the military uh, about this, too. Like, I don't... The friends of mine who are in the intelligence community or officers or people that I know, in the, people I know in the intelligence community that are there because they were, you know, we were officers together when we were lieutenants, um, are almost to a man or woman, liberal progressives. Right. Clinton but the, the soldiers, very, very different story, and especially in the combat units, so places like the Marine Corps. It's, it's very, very, very pro-Trump. The SEALs. And, you saw the video oh, of the, um, the SEALs uh, driving their armored Humvees down the freeway, waving Trump flags. Uh, yeah. Going around a while ago. Yeah. I, I don't think Trump needs to worry about a coup. Trump does not. That was sort of, there's some wishful thinking going around that, you know, oh, people aren't going to let Trump be president or somebody's going to do something. No, not with Trump. But here's the other thing is if, if there was a possibility that had Clinton been elected, she would have faced some kind of insurrection. There is also now the possibility that if Trump is impeached, there could be some type of insurrection. Will people be willing to see Trump go because he's the guy they like and they've invested all of these hopes into. And the type of person who has invested a lot of this hope tends to be fairly desperate politically and a gun owner. Right. Um, so 
To answer the original question, how can you advocate for guns knowing that advocating for gun ownership in any context is going to lead to more people dying and getting hurt? Uh, my answer would be, I worry that we're going to lose our country and, and that we have no means of recourse to that if we have no guns, we being the left in this case. And so am I willing, I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm like that crazy person on the right who's like, it's, it's about tyranny and it's about defending the country. Like that's, I guess that's what I believe, but on the left, uh, I'm not a libertarian, I'm an anarchist. You know, it's they're they're very different things, and I, I I trust the left a lot more with these things. I trust the left to say we are not doing a military coup. That's not what we do. But New England is well there are well armed militias in New England such that if say some swath of America were to say we've got a lot of guns and we secede now because we don't accept you know the dictates of uh, whatever uh, Neo Clinton, so we're gone, we're done. Uh, then the the left is will will have some type of political say there, and I, I don't think that's off the table now. I don't. So so that makes me a little bit of a kooky conspiracy theorist or alarmist. I guess is the right word to use. Well, I'm I'll, an alarmist. I'll tell you what. I was out of the U.S. for five years, six years maybe, um, after 2011 or thereabouts. Coming back just in time for the inauguration, and uh, I was struck by a couple of things. One was how terrified and panicked everyone is from all political persuasions. I mean, people are really losing it. And part of it is the economic pressure that's just grown and grown and grown. Whatever people have said about a recovery under the Obama years, it's not real for most people. So yeah. there's that tension. There is whatever combination of psychic forces and real politic, you know, combined to put Trump in charge uh, when very few people saw that coming, which just created more tension. And then there's his actual agenda for governance, um, which is deporting up to 11 million people. Uh, I don't see how you do that without the infrastructure of concentration camps and uh, without uh, programs like uh, floated out of uh, Homeland Security, signed by his handpicked uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, saying maybe we'll use the National Guard. Maybe we'll activate the National Guard and go round up some immigrants like that. Um, and his threat to essentially deploy peacekeepers, I don't know what you call it, in Chicago because of gang yeah. violence. I mean, the situation is much more fraught and fragile than I expected it to be uh, coming back after a distance. And it was that much more striking because I'd had time away. And I don't feel like one of the reasons I want to open with this is I don't feel like people have a very realistic sense of the situation, whether that's because of American exceptionalism or just our habits. Are, we're, we're accustomed to things going a certain way and a certain level of stability. But it feels very much to me like I was in Thailand just before the coup in 2006, and the rhetoric and the, the tension, it all feels very similar to me. It feels much less stable than um, people are giving it credit for, except when I was in D.C., people very in the know, establishment people, are having discussions like we're having right now. They're just not having them publicly. Our understanding of the Nazis is kind of a caricature. But then once you see how similar German society was, not Nazi society, Nazi German society was or is to our society, you realize that there's, there is always the potential for a group of people to just kind of go along 
um, and, and, and do things without questioning them, without questioning why you're doing them as an alarmist, as somebody who does believe in the kind of nutty Second Amendment is to protect us from tyranny point of view that one encounters often in the right and not so often in the left. I would say that what you get out of uh, an educated and armed populace, and I like them, I mean, the left are my people. Like, I, I, I trust the left um, more in some cases than I trust the right. Uh, because the left tends not to talk about coups and uh, and armed insurrection, tends not to. There are corners that do. I, I, because of that, I would say, yeah, like the left should be a group that arms. And that's the type of thing that the right would look at and say, maybe a coup isn't a good idea. I don't think we can pull this off. Like, you know, we're we're not just going to be able to walk up to Maine carrying our rifles and everyone's going to roll over like we we don't have we don't have the the assets to do this like mississippi and arkansas aren't just going to secede like most people don't want to do that so i guess we can't um but it comes at a a heavy price it does well that that seems like a good segue to some of your specific suggestions and i'll maybe maybe the easiest way to do this is just to read the paragraph from your essay um and i'll do that now you write, arming for violence requires the following actions, which conscientious and politically committed leftists must carry out at the earliest opportunity. One, leftists must join the military with special attention to the combat branches, joining the Army Infantry and the Marine Corps, becoming Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and Green Berets, and explosives ordnance disposal technicians in any branch must be priorities for leftists. Pilots of helicopters and fighter jets, too, are critically important. Two, leftists must buy, train on, and maintain rifles, carbines, and handguns. Three, leftists should organize into groups of 10 to 15 and do activities like two together. Why those uh, three specific recommendations? So firstly, it will, that is a practical way to teach one uh, how to use these things. It also has the utility of exposing people in the military, most of whom are on the center or center right or far right to people who are leftists, which is inherently useful because it also means then that the types of discussions that you're having uh, in the military and especially in the special operations branches uh, are more nuanced than um, do we want you know Jeb Bush to be president or do we want Marco Rubio to be president? Let's talk about the different points that they have in their political pro. Or are we Trump guys? You know, oh screw the Bush people. We're not like them. We're Trump people. Uh, and then you've got a Navy SEAL convoy that has you know a couple of you know we like Trump uh, uh, bumper stickers or flags or whatever or make America great again. And then there's a couple that are I. I Che is such a a, 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 a a cliche that it's 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 not about Che. It's not about Che Guevara. But you know maybe Sanders, like Bernie Sanders, has a couple flags too. And they're like, yeah, we don't really like Trump. We think he's kind of a jerk. Uh, this is more what we stand for. Um, I would feel a lot safer if our military and if our police were like that. If if I felt that there was a, a more democratic sense of those forces in America, a more balanced sense of the forces. Um, and I'm concerned that they're not. I'm concerned that they 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 break right as many militaries traditionally do. Yeah, you're saying a, a more politically diverse armed forces is less dangerous. Um, 
to the domestic population. Absolutely. But that has been one of the consequences of having a standing army is that a certain type of person uh, tends to join. They self-select. And the, the, the pinnacle of the, you know, the apex of the pyramid is special operations. And those people tend to be certain things. They tend to be conservative in terms of their social values. They tend to fall on the right side of the political spectrum. And they tend, tend to be religious. Um, I have no issues fundamentally with any of those things. However, when you have that dominate, like the government's manifestation of force, like the, the government's coercive power, then it's an issue. Yeah, and you get groups like the Oath Keepers, which um, despite their rhetoric, and I've talked to these people, I said, where were you in George W. Bush years? Oh, we were here. And it's like, no, not, re not really. <laughs> That's not true. And now yeah. that the dawn of the Trump era, they've taken on a, a much different form where they're policing uh, demonstrations. They're showing up almost as some kind of like paramilitary companion force, for instance, in Ferguson. When you had, you know, police using military equipment driving down the streets in Missouri, like uh, it's Red Dawn or something. And then you've got these guys that their whole reason for organizing is we won't obey unlawful orders. We're here to protect the freedoms of the population. And it, it just all falls apart once it's black people or leftists. So that's the, you know, that's part of the context we we're discussing, too. Your third point, explain this a little more leftists should organize into groups of 10 to 15 and uh, train on their guns. This is just what the right does, you know. Instead of calling it a militia, you can call it a working group, or you can call it going out shooting with your friends or whatever. John Brown Society. In Arizona. Um, That's right. We should, uh, we should explain this. It looked like a group of anarchists who had... Who were, who were presenting with, with military-style uh, weapons, um, and, and they could have been Oath Keepers, except they were on the left. That's a really easy way of saying something far more complicated. Yes, and okay. I have proof of that. I found an article. This is from uh, March 27th on uh, guns.com. Uh, Left-wing gun owners openly carried their firearms in front of the Arizona Capitol Saturday as part of a counter-demonstration against a pro-Trump march occurring in the same area. The groups involved the Brown Berets, Phoenix John Brown Gun Club, and anti-fascist action Phoenix. Um, and there's a picture of some of these folks. It's a motley crew, camos, strange headwear, sunglasses, bandanas, and assault rifles. <laughs> Trying to look tough. It's, uh, you know, uh, isn't, this pro isn't this needlessly provocative? Is this, is, is this what you had in mind when you suggested that? What I was thinking of was more like my hometown of Brantford, Connecticut. And I know, you know, I grew up with uh, a handful of guys who are still there, who have made their, uh, who made their lives there. And, and, and to me, it's, it's much more uh, community oriented. It's much, it's, it's, it's more like the, you're, you're not organized necessarily. Um, it, you are organized as a leftist because you share political convictions with people. But it's more like this This isn't to do something. This is in case we need it. Um, and I totally agree with you that there is – and it's it's crazy that we're even talking this way. Like, of course, I'm, this is what I mean. Yes, I mean the John Brown group and I mean the anti-fascist group too. Like it – and it's – it, it, it is the logical – I'm sorry to, to have backed away from it earlier too. This is exactly what I mean. And the other thing that I mean is 
because I'm so used to speaking this way and thinking this way and thinking, no, this isn't the type of person that we are. Uh, the other, the other type of thing that I think is, um, is what happens, this is an interesting hypothetical, what happens then when the people on the right who own and maintain guns and are used to saying, yeah, the left, they're a bunch of pinko, tree-hugging pussies. This, yeah, this, they, they talk tough, but they don't do anything and they don't even own any guns. What happens when that, hypo, when that hypothetical, which seems to be such a treasured element of their discourse, is challenged in any type of serious way? My hope... And my gut tells me that because of our shared American heritage and our shared values and the narrative that we all inhabit, what happens instead of violence is a kind of honest reckoning. But I also have to be honest when I say in our history, there are examples that disprove that hypothesis that uh, like, for example, our civil war. Yeah. I mean that would be that would be one glaring example of when when uh, you know different uh, sides uh, arming up uh, did not create some kind of de-escalation. Um, things got really messy and ugly for a long time. Um, and I'm not you know I I obviously couldn't predict the future you know so this this group I mean and when we talk about the kinds of people that are getting involved, my experience with some of these Antifa groups is that they are, uh, forgive me, uh, listeners, some of you who may be involved in some of these groups, uh, looking for a fight. You know, we're talking a lot of 20-something guys with excess testosterone. And I could point to a couple of recent incidents here in Portland um, where Antifa showed up trying to make trouble. And if that's the kind of people that are going to be inclined um, to pursue this sort of strategy, is that something we really want to add firearms to the mix with? But if you're if, if you're looking to crack heads, that's absolutely that like that's the problem we're talking about here. That's what we're trying to forestall. We're saying that there is a group of people who would be very happy to crack heads, who have cracked heads in the past. And if we do not have the means to prevent the head cracking, then the head cracking is at a much higher we're we're at a much higher risk collectively at having our heads cracked. Um, but we don't want to be the, the people who do that. If we're doing it, then we're the bad guys by definition. You're saying, it, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what you're describing is less like um, getting, forming your, your local Antifa uh, chapter into uh, some kind of armed cell, but rather um, instead of, uh, you know, going out and playing softball or uh kickball with some beers and your friends on the weekend, um, you go to the firing range instead. Yeah. In groups of 10 to 15, um, I'm not trying to destroy the U S I'm not trying to bring the U S into an, a, a state of anarchy. I'm not trying to reduce the United States's influence abroad. I am trying to balance what I see as a deeply unequal society and, political arena when it comes to the left, not progressives, not liberals, but, uh, you know, universal basic income kind of people, uh, you know, technology should be working for us. Uh, some redistribution of wealth. Yes. Uh, more equitable taxes. Uh, we should have more of a stake at the table. And I, not only do I not think that we're taken seriously because we have not equipped ourselves for violence, I think it's gotten to the point where we could be coming to another 
era of uh, losing rights because we're not equipped to, de to defend them. I think it's I, I think that's what Trump tells me. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like you would wind up with um, completely unqualified and vaguely inbred looking scions of people who inherited most of their wealth and status um, <laughs> deciding <laughs> just you know, running the government and deciding how to redraw uh, all the federal agencies and uh, which programs should cut, which of their friends should get the fat contracts or avoid prosecution for crimes against the state. It would almost be like that. Yeah, yeah. Good, good thing it's not like that now, right? Yeah, that would be horrible. <laughs> well, um, so this is going to be the most cheery uh, podcast <laughs> on the internet. Well, Adrian, uh, it's been a pleasure to, to get to know you a little bit over the phone here. Yeah, great, great to meet you too, man. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Stay in touch. Talk to you later. So that was Adrian. Heavy stuff. Do you wish we were still talking about animals? I kind of do. I don't know how to end this on a positive note. Thanks to Will, Amber, and Adrian again for coming on. And thank you for listening. I'm Corey Pine. This is News From Nowhere. And I'll come at you again in a couple of weeks. Okay, bye.